Here in the U.S., we have presidential candidates like Donald Trump casually calling to register American Muslims and ban Muslim immigrants and refugees from entering this country. It is no coincidence that hate crimes rise in parallel with election cycles. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Amicus from Slate, The Majority Report, Propaganda from Bitch Media, The Young Turks, and a TED Talk by Suzanne Barakat. I'm joined today by Richard Cahan, who is author of Un-American, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War Two. There's so much, Richard, to talk about with uh, Japanese American internment during World War Two in relation to 2016 and 2017. But before we do that, give us the quick sort of summary of what this internment incarceration was. Uh, I, I actually did one of the things you talk about in the book, which is the use of some of these words that that are confusing words of incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. For people who don't know what happened, let's start there. Great. Well, the incarceration really began um, on Pearl Harbor Day. Um, within 11 weeks of Pearl Harbor, over 110,000 Japanese Americans were picked up from their homes and forcibly removed. The worry was that they were going to either collaborate or spy for for, for the government of Japan. Mm. And the idea was if we could put them in what turned out to be concentration camps, um, the security risk would be lessened quite a bit. Um, it began uh, in late February with Executive Order 9066 when President Franklin Roosevelt um, passed an order that basically allowed the military to decide the fate of Japanese Americans. Um, there was a lot of consternation. There wasn't a lot of formal protests. Japanese Americans pretty much saw that this was their um, contribution to the war effort. And I think culturally uh, standing up and standing against government officials was something that was um, unheard of, unusual at the time. Mm. Um, most of them were kept for the duration of the war for over three years. Some were released during these three years. To, they could move to the Midwest, but most of them couldn't do that because they didn't have connections to the Midwest. So most of them stayed. When they were picked up, there was no idea whether they would be picked up for a week, a month, a year, forever. And um, so it's a very shameful part of American history. Uh, 60,000 of the 110,000 or close to 70,000 were actually U.S. citizens, people that were born in the United States. Um, and uh, that's why the term in, in, internment, which has been used for so many decades, is now looked down upon because you and I, uh, American citizens, can't be interned. Uh, so it's really a um, it, it's a lie of what happened. So that's why we use the word incarceration on the cover of our book and, and the title and also throughout the book. We we sometimes have this sort of thought in our minds that Americans today would never allow this to happen to our neighbors or people that are fellow citizens here in the United States. But back during World War II, what was the response of neighbors to what was going on with Japanese Americans? I look carefully at that question. I wish the news was better. Mm. Um, there were a few letters to the editor. Uh, there was one organization, the American Friends Service uh, Committee, uh, the Quakers, that, that stood up for the Japanese Americans. 
but generally there was this feeling that this was in the best interest in this country. Uh, this is really a story of, of when security uh, triumphs over civil liberties. And um, when we, there were many individual instances of American neighbors helping, uh, whenever we heard those stories, we included them in the book. People who uh, took over farms and gave back the farms to families after the war, people who watched over possessions. But I wish there were more of those stories. There, there unfortunately weren't enough of them. Let's relate what we're talking about here in terms of Japanese Americans during World War II to what we have seen hints of under the incoming Donald Trump administration. And, and the, the one policy idea that comes to mind for me is this idea floated about a Muslim registry that would exist. Um, let's start more generally. I mean, what is it right to see an overlap in terms of at least the ideologies that create these ideas? Boy, that's a thousand dollar question. Predicting the future is so difficult, but I will say a couple things. Uh, number one, this is not ancient history. This happened 75 years ago that many of the people who lived through this are still alive. So we're not talking about the Greeks or the civil war or something mm -hmm. very far away. This, these are actually people who live in contemporary days. Um, there are people who doubt that something like this could happen. Uh, but, but the problem is, is even the discussion of the Muslim registry brings this up. Uh, it's been said that it's a, that, that the incarceration is a precedent to the American, uh, to the idea of the Muslim registry. Look at this book, look at the records and you'll see it's a very bad precedent to that. Um, once you start separating American citizens and saying, you people are going to register and you people don't have to register. That's when all the, the machinery begins. It's exactly what happened to Japanese Americans. They were first told they should register. And then within a couple of days, they were told to report. Once the registration process has started, the entire process has started. So I think we have to be very leery of what's going on now. Is your sense that civil rights organizations are better equipped today than they were during World War II to prevent, as you say, the first steps from starting. The ACLU has been receiving record donations. Uh, we've seen a number of these organizations really, really be emboldened by the election of Donald Trump. Is that maybe a good sign that we have more safeguards in place? I think it is a good sign, but um, it's hard to fight government when government has decided. There's already been talk uh, of that, that the that the registry is constitutional. It's interesting that as I did my research, I looked at the early years of 1942 when the, when, when the was being thought of the same exact words were used that this is constitutional. I, mm -hmm. I don't know how people get to that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that this is constitution. This is a, uh, a denial of civil liberties. And, um, um, but, but the same words are starting to be used again in a, in a, it's very early in, in, I mean, the administration hasn't even begun yet and there are people talking about this. So, um, I'd like to say that we're more sophisticated, uh, more determined, more set up to stop things like that. But I've seen in the past what happens when people get scared, you know, when we get scared, uh, we make very irrational decisions and we make lots of mistakes and I see people being scared now. And, um, that's worrisome. Uh, not not that I'm someone to point to things that uh, the late Antonin Scalia ever said as, as sort of guiding principles or anything like that. But I found it interesting in preparing for our conversation that Antonin Scalia, the conservative Supreme Court justice uh, whose seat 
remains open on the Supreme Court, by the way, said a couple of years ago that, quote, you are kidding yourself if you think the same thing, referring to uh, incarceration camps, will not happen again. Even even he believing that it is possible that circumstances in America could lead to that again. And I, I think maybe not that he's someone who's who whose morality and principles I follow, but if even Antonin Scalia recognized that this could happen again, I think that that means a lot. I, I agree with you. He made the point a few years ago to uh, law students in Hawaii, and um, and I agree the fact that he is of a uh, that 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 he would that he would recognize this. I think it's it's very uh, uh, it's very worth noting, uh, and I think that. This book to me was a surprise and that I saw how fast everything happened. And, and it's still a surprise to me how we tend not to um, look back at these years and recognize them. Um, there's, I just spent the weekend in, in Arizona and there was two incarceration camps in Arizona. And to find these camps, to find the remains of these camps, I thought you could find anything on the internet. In one of the camps, um, it was absolutely impossible to find. I had to be guided by Native Americans. They, they, believe it or not, the camps were on Indian reservations, and Native Americans had to show me where these camps were. So um, um, there's a lot to learn from this incident and from the from the book here. What I think you see here, there's been many great books written in, on the incarceration, novels and nonfiction. But this book shows photographs and it really takes us back to the time and you can see what people look like the day they were picked up and you can see the conditions and the caps when they were taken. And I think that helps us understand. It helped me understand the situation much better. Yeah, the photographs absolutely you know, d disturbing and illuminating in so many ways. We've been talking about the book Un-American, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War Two. The book's author is Richard Cahan. It's been so great speaking to you about this. When the kids asked mom, where are we going? Nobody even knew what to say to them. Ken didn't want to lie. He said the U.S. is looking for spies. So we have to live in a place called Mandanar, where a lot of Japanese people are. Stop it. Don't look at the gunmen. You don't want to get the soldiers wondering if you're going to run or not. Because if you run, then you might get shot. Other than that, try not to think about it. Try not to worry about it being so crowded. But someday we'll get out. Someday. Someday. Just a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court got a bunch of unwanted attention, not for something it has done this year, but for something it did, well, 72 years ago. That's when it ruled that interning Japanese Americans during World War II was perfectly constitutional. The comment that touched off the discussion about the case, Korematsu versus United States, was made by a Trump surrogate, Carl Higby, in an interview with Fox News's Megyn Kelly. The two were discussing a remark by Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, in which he suggested that the incoming Trump administration was considering reinstating a registry for all U.S. residents from a handful of predominantly Muslim countries. We've done it with Iran back uh, back a, a while ago. We did it during World War II with Japanese, which, you know, call it what you Come will. On. Maybe, maybe you're, wrong, not, you're not proposing we go back to the days of internment camps, I hope. No, no, no. I'm not proposing that at all, Megan. But what I am you know saying is that we need to protect that. America I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets people scared, Carl. Right. 
But it's, I'm just saying there is precedent for it, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but in this case, I absolutely believe that a regional base... You can't be citing Japanese internment camps as precedent for anything the president-elect is going to do. Look, the president needs to protect America first, and if that means having people that are not protected under our Constitution have some sort of registry so we can understand until we can identify the true threat and where it's coming from, I support it. Joining us now to discuss registries and other matters is Neil Cadial. He's the former acting solicitor general of the United States, a partner at Hogan Lovells in Washington, D.C., and a professor of constitutional law at Georgetown Law School. Welcome to Amicus, Neil Cadial. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I, I want to talk to you about something that sort of surfaced last week and then seemed to have fizzled but keeps surfacing, and that is this idea of creating a, a Muslim registry or database. Now, it starts off in the campaign. Donald Trump says it. He takes it back. You know, his surrogates say it. They take it back on again, off again. So we actually don't know that much about whether this is a serious proposal or if this is just more kind of shucking and jiving that happens in a political season, right? Correct. I mean, he's kind of jumped back and forth. I mean, remember in December 2015, he had a press release saying Donald J. Trump is calling a complete and total shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And other points, he said he did certainly implement a database to track Muslims in the United States. But then sometimes every so often, there seems to be a little rollback of that. So it's hard to know what's what's going on. You know, he is the president-elect. And so until he removes those policies from the discourse, I think it's worth talking about them. Well, then let's talk about them. I think it comes up again last week, uh, Neil, when we see, first of all, Kansas Secretary of State, uh, Chris Kobach is photographed holding documents, top secret documents in plain sight that seem to suggest at least that there's a plan for, quote, special registration of immigrants. And it re-raises this possibility that this is on the table. And then a Trump surrogate last week went on the media and said, oh, there's, you know, great precedent for this uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court around uh, the Japanese internment. So let's maybe start with the proposition that there's precedent for this. I mean, that there is legal precedent, right? Kormatsu is still good law? Well, um, there is legal precedent in the sense that you can find a case that could help uh, President-elect Trump um, put forth his proposal. The problem is that case is just about as discredited as any case outside of maybe Dred Scott, the case that precipitated the Civil War. And it's actually a series of cases. It starts with Gordon Hirabayashi's case in 1942 and then goes on through the Korematsu case that this advisor, Carl Higby, to President-elect Trump was uh, citing. And, you know, in these cases, the court was considering the question of whether or not Japanese-American citizens could be excluded on the basis of their race from certain areas and then ultimately detained in camps uh, taken away from their homes. And it's a remarkable story um, that I think, you know, hasn't fully been uh, appreciated in the public consciousness about what these cases, how they started, what they're about, and indeed kind of the, the horrible things that happened. And when I was uh, the government's chief uh, litigation officer, acting solicitor general, I actually went back and looked at all of the records and what the government told the Supreme Court in these cases. And it turns out that they had basically lied to the Supreme Court. Um, and so if I could just spend a minute kind of explaining what happened, mm -hmm. and then we can really understand uh, this Trump advisor, Carl Higby's uh, so-called precedent and, and what it's really about. So you had these Japanese exclusion orders, and they applied not just to 
people who are coming into the country, but people who have been born here, including this guy, Gordon Hiribayashi, who's born in the United States to Japanese parents. And uh, he's, a, he's a version of a Quaker, and he's about 18 years old. He's a, stu- he's a student at the University of Washington, and he sees these orders that are targeting him on the basis of nothing more than his race. He'd never been to Japan in his life. And he says, this is really unconstitutional. And so he goes and sets out to violate the curfew orders. And he goes and turns himself into the FBI saying, hey, I violated the curfew orders. And the FBI says, well, you know, we'll look past it this time. You know, don't worry about it. And he says, no, you're supposed to arrest me. So they arrest him. They bring him to court. He defends himself at trial um, and says this is an unconstitutional thing. He says, look, I did it, but it's totally unconstitutional. He loses the argument, and then he's sentenced. And the judge says at sentencing, the judge says, you know, look, we're fighting a war. I'm supposed to send you to a prison camp, but the nearest prison camp is a thousand miles away, and I don't have the resources to do that in the midst of fighting a war. So, you know, don't worry about it. You can just go home. And Gordon says to the judge, you know, I'm a Quaker, and my version of Quakerism is that if I've been sentenced, even if I disagree with it, I got to serve my sentence. The judge says, I don't have any way to get you there. And so what does Gordon do? He hitchhikes a thousand (laughs) miles to Tucson on his own back and gets there and serves his sentence. Now, while he's serving his sentence, he's bringing his case to the Supreme Court. And the Solicitor General at the time, the person running litigation, is a guy named Charles Fahey. And Fahey's subordinates, the line attorneys, there's a guy named Ennis um, and another, another guy named Burling. And they start looking into this and they realize that actually the whole idea of kind of uh, curfews and exclusion orders and ultimately, you know, detention orders for Japanese Americans makes no sense. That actually the intelligence reports, there was a report done by the Office of Naval Intelligence, which had the lead. And that report said that, you know, that the mass internment was unjustified, that only a tiny percentage were potentially disloyal. And indeed, the report concludes with these words. This is the intelligence report, quote, the entire Japanese problem has been magnified out of its true proportion, largely because of the physical characteristics of the people. And J. Edgar Hoover, who's no fan of civil liberties, who's running the FBI, agrees with this intelligence report and agrees with Ennis and uh, Burling. So Ennis and Burling write to the Solicitor General. This is a memo saying, quote, we have to consider most carefully what our obligation of the court is. I think we should consider very carefully whether we do not have a duty to advise the court of the existence of the report it occurs to me that any other course of conduct might approximate the suppression of evidence. The suppression of evidence. This is what right. the Solicitor General is told. What does the Solicitor General do? Nothing. He orders his deputy to double down on these security arguments. There's 15 pages in the brief saying that Japanese Americans are a threat and potentially disloyal. And then the Supreme Court issues that opinion, and then another one later deferring to the executive branch. But they weren't told anything else. They were only told all of the kind of hysterical stuff, not actually what the intelligence community truly thought. So that is the best precedent they have. It's a precedent that's based on, frankly, lies from the executive branch to the highest court of the land. And it's a precedent that has been widely discredited, so much so that actually a district court, when some of these lies came out in 1988, a trial court went and overruled the Supreme Court and said Korematsu is not good law. And so 
you know, I guess they can cite it. I guess they can also cite Dred Scott. Um, but, um, you know, certainly were I running the litigation strategy for the United States government, um, there's probably not many cases that I'd want to cite less than Korematsu versus the United States. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you please, don't fence me in. Chief National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, here he is. Let's just start with uh, him in uh, May of 2016 on Al Jazeera. He's with Mehdi Hassan. He is defending a tweet that he uh, put out there. These are, you know, this is, this is the era that we're in. Here he is. This is your, um, uh, this is basically um, next version of Condi Rice and whatnot. Kissinger. Kissinger was a little less unhinged. I'm I'm just saying in terms of like how much power they have in the administration. Yeah, that's right. This is a major role. Here he is um, expressing his, uh, defending this tweet, uh, saying that it's rational. Well, let's hear him say. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book on radical Islamism. I mean, I'm trying to be very precise because I don't think every single Muslim in the world wants to kill the other 7 billion people in the world. I'm glad you say that because a tweet you put out in February, you said fear of Muslims is rational. You didn't say radical Islamists or terrorists. You said fear of Muslims. And look at the rest of it. Take the whole thing. Take the whole The rest of the quote is fear of Muslims is rational. Please forward this to others. The truth fears no questions. Because (laughs) because of the the article that it was about. It was a video that you were sharing. And so what we have to do is we have to make sure that we understand what it is that we are facing, what it is that you're facing. I mean, you know, you're the, the, the number of Muslims being killed by these guys. Agreed. Are unbelievable. So why are you saying to be fear of all Muslims? I'm not saying to be fear. You said fear, fear of, of Muslims is rational. I'm not. I'm so are, you, are you afraid of me? Is I'm, what not, I'm, I'm not saying that. I, you, this, you said this, it. You have no, to. But look at the context of the so of that not, particular okay, so tweet fine. and so, the and so the video that was for about. our viewers. You're not afraid of Muslims. No. In general. No. Okay. Good no, to know. No. And uh, otherwise, you and I'd be wrestling that's right what, now. That's what I was confused about, and you'd probably win, <laughs> uh, which is why I should be afraid of you. Yeah. Well, that fear, I would imagine, would be increased. You know what? He just casually put out there fear of Muslims. That's all. It's just, he just casually put it out there. Anybody could make that mistake. It's not like he's number what, um, I don't know what number he is in our government. In terms of uh, Trump's ear, he seems to be number one. He's the first guy, right? Maybe the third guy who got a position. So nothing to worry about with Michael Flynn. He tweets out, fear of Muslims is rational. It doesn't mean every single Muslim in the world. It's just exactly like, what he said, man. Just, Stop being so fear Maybe just a maybe just the majority of them. Maybe just even like 25% of the 1.6 billion, whatever it is. 
He just wants you to know that he doesn't fear you if you're Muslim and he's on a TV show with you and you're the host of the TV well, show. Well, if you're literally hosting a TV show, you're probably not planning ISIS up. But that's what he said in May of 2016. By August of 2016, his thoughts had developed a little bit, apparently, because that's almost four months later. And I would remind you, it's only four months ago. Here he is giving a speech to the anti-Muslim group Act for America. Islam is a political ideology. It is a political ideology. It, it definitely hides behind this, this notion of it being a religion. And I have a very, very tough time because I don't see a lot of people screaming Jesus Christ with hatchet, you know, hatchets or machetes or, or rifles shooting up clubs or, or hatcheting, you know, literally axing families on a train. Or like they just killed a couple of police officers with, with a machete. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. So, so we have a problem. It's like cancer. I've gone through cancer in my own life. Okay, so it's like cancer, and it's and it's like a it's like a malignant cancer though in this case that has metastasized. So like I just said, in, in the number of, of attacks in 22 countries in just the last 45 days, I mean when I look back over the last you know 10 years or 15 years of my life and the things that I've seen and the things that I've witnessed against this this very vicious threat. Yeah, you never hear any of that. Like uh, Lieutenant uh, General Boykin, right? Who was talking about in Iraq, like how our God is going to beat their God. Those those ignorant 1.6 billion Muslims who don't realize that they're just using their religion as a as a fig leaf for their political ideology. National Security Advisor, Chief National Security Advisor. I mean, this, this stuff is not going to be at arm's length. It's, it, it's going to start projecting outward, and then it's going to move inward. First they came for the communists, and I said nothing. Besides, what could one man do? Then they came for me. I said, no, this cannot be. Well, I spoke up, but no one left to speak for me. Yes, I spoke up, but no one was left to speak for me. One of the most dangerous and fear-mongering talking points of the Trump campaign was his idea to ban Muslim immigrants. This is discrimination, pure and simple. There's no other word for it, except, of course, the word Islamophobia. 
While Trump's election lends this kind of religious-based discrimination terrible validity, bigotry toward Muslim Americans is, of course, not new. It's something journalist Sarah Harvard knows all too well. My name is Sarah Harvard. I'm a staff writer at Mike for the Identity section, and I cover religion, race, and where that intersects with politics. Islamophobia didn't start with Donald Trump. It, 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 you know, it really intensified right after 9-11 um, and even existed before then with you know, Orientalism being popular among Americans and American politics and American culture. Um, but right now I'm seeing a huge shift where before Muslim Americans were afraid of systemic violence, but more so in the sense of surveillance um, and like covert operations or entrapment cases, which... We're happening a lot within our communities, but not in a very, you know, large uh, sense. But now our, our priorities are shift to like basic survival. It's not only that we have to worry about systemic violence um, or police brutality, because a lot of our Muslim Americans are, you know, African-American or Hispanic. Um, but now we have to worry whether or not our neighbors are going to attack us. I asked Sarah what she's most worried about on Donald Trump's agenda. I personally don't want to uh, speak on behalf of all Muslim Americans, but from my understanding, a lot of them are terrified because there's a sense of uncertainty, right? With with the Hillary Clinton presidency, you kind of know what to expect. She's not really that great when it comes to civil liberties, um, that you know, on policies that incriminates Muslim Americans. But we know what to expect. We know how to protect herself. But with Donald Trump, he's so unexpected, so we're not really sure. If um, he's going to go forward with his Muslim ban proposal or his plan to register Muslims. And we're not sure Donald Trump's going to use Rita Giuliani's suggestion of using uh, tagging devices on Muslim Americans to track them. And these things sound so outlandish, you know, as a Muslim American, as someone who's also Japanese American, I would assume that we would learn from our lessons about how horrible it is to put Japanese Americans into internment camps. You know, never would I ever thought that we would talk about registering Muslims into a database or using tagging devices like them on them like they're cattle. But here we are in 2016 and politicians and lawmakers are openly discussing about it. And what's even more scary is that a huge number of Americans or maybe a majority percentage of Americans are in favor of that or are undecided. Um, and I think that's what's terrifying. Not only is our lawmakers and the people that we elected to represent us are proposing policies that harm and affect us and alienate us, our neighbors are also supporting it or are staying silent on it. And that's, and that's scary. I asked Sarah Harvard what those of us who don't want to stay silent who want to support our Muslim friends and neighbors can do to help stop this kind of bigotry every day. I think the most important thing you can do is to ensure that you're fighting off ignorance. And right now we are in the digital age. We have social media. And the sad thing about that is that false information, conspiracy theories and rumors can spread fast. But the good thing about it is that we also have information in our fingertips and it's it's uh, limitless, essentially. So whenever you see an Islamophobic post or an article that's um, very misleading or has a certain xenophobic, Islamophobic agenda, is to counter that.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So after the attacks in Paris, uh, a lot of people have been calling on President Obama and all the Democrats to call this terrorism what it is. Islamic terrorism. These are Islamic radicals. Now, I, I have no problem with uh, saying that. And it, as a lot of you know, I, I don't think you should then blame all Muslims. And a lot of people will say, well, nobody's doing that. Some people are doing that. But, uh, but there is a significant camp that's not blaming all Muslims, but they're just saying, hey, just call it what it is. Because if you say Muslim radicals instead of just radicals are terrorists, I don't know. Does that magically fix it? I don't know. But they are Muslim radicals. So uh, did President Obama go in that direction? Well, no. If anything, he went in the opposite direction. Now, I got to call it like it is. So I'm going to give you some quotes from the president, uh, and you'll get a sense of it. He said, the face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. Wow. Okay. He said, uh, Americans understand we fight not a religion. Ours is not a campaign against the Muslim faith. He went further. He said, this great nation of many religions understands our war is not against Islam or against faith practice by the Muslim people. I mean, this is a point where you pause and go, man, this sounding like he's trying to apologize for Islam and what a great peaceful religion it is after we just got hit by Muslim radicals. Don't don't be a Muslim apologist at a moment like this, right? Well, it takes it further. Islam is a vibrant faith. More compliments towards Islam. Millions of our fellow citizens are Muslim. We respect the faith. We honor its traditions. Our enemy does not. Our enemy doesn't follow the great the great traditions of Islam. They've hijacked a great religion. Wow, if you're worried that President Obama is uh, being a little bit of an apologist for Islam, I can see that those quotes are damaging. And this just in, we just discovered this actually. Um, turns out, not after these attacks, but just six days after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Obama went to the Islamic Center in Washington, D.C. and gave a speech cautioning against bigotry and religious discrimination against Muslims. After 9-11, it's not time to worry about Muslims. It's time to worry about attacking them, right? The people who attacked us. He went to an Islamic center six days after 9-11. 
What are you doing there? Why are you going to an Islamic center? You should be going to our center, right? Oh, I'm sorry. None of this was President Obama. It was all President George W. Bush. So every one of those quotes, uh, the face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. George W. Bush. Uh, America's understand our fight is not against the Muslim faith. George W. Bush. The great nation of many religions understand our war is not against Islam uh, or uh, faith practiced by Muslim people. George W. Bush. Uh, we respect the faith. We honor its traditions. Our enemy does not. Uh, they've hijacked the great traditions of Islam. George W. Bush. And the person who went to the Islamic Center in Washington, D.C. six days after 9-11 was not Barack Obama. It was George W. Bush. So all the Republicans out there uh, telling us, Bush was right and he had this thing figured out. Republicans have always been right. You blame the Muslims. The It's Muslim radicals, Muslim terrorists, Muslim radicals, right? That's Why won't Obama say it? Why won't Obama say it? How about Bush? I didn't hear you complaining back then. No, Bush was strong and tough and knew who the real fight was against, right? Interesting double standard. Maybe we're playing with the quotes, right? Well, okay, listen to the man himself. Here he is on tape. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. These terrorists don't represent peace. They represent evil and war. Islam is peace. Now, look, I'm not blaming George Bush for those quotes. Elliot uh, Abrams, one of the top neocons in his administration, said, hey, we're about to go to war in two Muslim countries, and we need allies in those countries. It wasn't time to basically spit in their eye, to paraphrase him, right? There wasn't a direct quote in terms of spitting in their eye. But he said, we need those Muslim allies to fight with us. We didn't want to insult them, which makes a lot of sense. And uh, Juan Carlos Zarate, a counterterrorism advisor, also had said, you do not want to offend your allies. You certainly do not want to describe the threat in terms of a war on Islam. You know why? Because that will get a lot of our troops killed. It will make people want to fight with us, even if they weren't against us in the first place. If they say, hey, if you're fighting ISIS, great, I'm fighting ISIS in this particular case. Back then after 9-11, hey, you're fighting al-Qaeda, Iran was fighting against al-Qaeda. Lots of uh, the people of Afghanistan were fighting against the Taliban. They're like, great, then I want to fight against the Taliban with you. I want to fight against al-Qaeda with you. If you're fighting against Islam, wait a minute, then I'm against you and I'll join their side. That's a terrible idea. That's why Bush didn't say it's all Muslims. He needed those Muslim allies and... It wasn't true. It wasn't all Muslims. A lot of Muslims fight with us. In fact, if you're going against Muslims today, where would you go? You say, okay, let's go bomb the Muslims, okay? No, no, Muslims in general, it's the ideology of Islam that has led to this, right? So uh, let's go bomb Muslims. Oh, you'd have hit the Kurds who are fighting against ISIS. You'd hit uh, some of the anti-Assad forces, anti-ISIS forces in Syria. Would you hit Turkey, a top NATO ally? I mean, they are Muslim. I don't know, right? I mean, it's the ideology of Islam. We have to call it what it is, and we have to declare war on it, right? Okay, go fight the ideology of Islam in Indonesia. What the hell are you doing over there? See, that's why Bush knew it was a bad idea. Obama knows it's a bad idea, because as president, you have to make sure that we have a lot of allies, that our troops don't get unnecessarily killed, 
by antagonizing more people and that we hit the right targets. Even Bush, who couldn't hit the right target of his life, depended on it, said, hey, wait, this is a monumentally bad idea to try to fight a war against the whole ideology of Islam. So I'm not saying Bush was wrong in those clips. What I'm saying is, don't be a hypocrite. Be consistent. If you didn't like what Bush said there, he was way more of a quote-unquote apologist, as people would say, than Obama's ever been. Okay. Obama did not go to Islamic Center six days after 9-11, and he's not the one that said over and over, Islam is peace. That was your boy, George W. Bush. Forget the president's shadows are emotion. It's more than religion that created this commotion. Corrosion of humanity, divide and conquer. That's why you're looking at every Muslim like they a monster. You're misguided and blinded by those around you. Thinking every Muslim is evil and homicidal. Well, my Ummah, my people, my brothers and my sisters. We are all equal. Humanity's within us. We are from the same fans. Some are good, some are sinners. From the righteous to the killers. Only God can forgive us. For well, my Ummah, my people. My brothers and my sisters, we are all equal. Humanities within us, we are from the same band. Some are good, some are sinners. From the righteous to the killers, only God can forgive us. Yeah. Islamophobia is a worldwide epidemic. Open your eyes, don't buy the hate rhetoric. Before 9-11, no one cared about your creed. Now you get persecuted because of what you believe. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's action, learn how to support your Muslim American. American neighbors. In his farewell address to the nation, President Obama said, quote, We have to be consistent in condemning hateful rhetoric. None of us can be bystanders to bigotry, unquote. With horrifying talk of registries and the revival of something akin to McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee, and even attempts at justification for camps, it feels like the roller coaster we've been on as a country is rapidly free-falling backwards. The Muslim-American community has been strong, creative, and resolved in the face of increasing hate and Islamophobia over the years, but with the radical white nationalist right entering the White House in a week, it is more important than ever to show our Muslim friends and neighbors that we have their backs. So today our activism is about educating yourself so that you can be a valuable teammate and advocate for your fellow citizens as Trump, the Republicans, and their supporters make good on their promise to unjustly target them. Muslim Advocates is a national legal advocacy and educational organization that works on the front line of civil rights to guarantee freedom and justice for all Americans of all faiths. Think ACLU, but with a Muslim American rights and religious freedom focus. Their website is a rich resource of information, like a how-to page on reporting hate crimes that's organized by state, tips and examples of effective tactics to use when responding to Islamophobia and harassment of Muslims online, updates on their current litigation, and Muslim voices and perspectives on their blog. Head over to muslimadvocates.org to start educating yourself on how to be a better teammate. If you're Muslim, this is a resource you can share with your non-Muslim friends when they start asking you how they can help so you don't have to explain everything yourself. And a note on that, the farther away you are from being personally affected by Trumpian policies, the more you should make sure to do as much of your own homework as you possibly can before you even think about asking a Muslim person or a person of color how you can help. To give just one perspective on this and another useful resource, here is a real-life Muslim woman and co-host of the podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. I really love our listeners. Thank you for all the donations. I love them, too. I love them. They're so great. They're so great. I love all these emails. I read them all the time. 
But don't ask me as a white person to explain things to you. Please, please go to a white ally. There's tons of white allies that will talk to you. And actually, we're going to have it up on our website. I'm going to link to a syllabus for white people to educate themselves. So I don't need to do it. White people talking to themselves. And then there's this other white-led organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice. It's called Surge. So if you go to Showing Up for Racial Justice, if you're a white person who's trying to get me and Zara to talk to you to explain your whiteness, just go to these websites. Don't email us. I mean, we do appreciate it, though. We love our fans. Just, you know, here's my thing is that, that like, our job as people of color, my job as an activist, as a person of color, is to empower other people of color, to empower Asian Americans, to empower Muslim Americans, to help them find their voice. And, you know, like, sometimes I'll talk to white people, but after the Trump presidency, I'm going through a traumatic experience. And I know that everyone wants to help and everyone wants to know, like, maybe this is their first time. This is their political awakening. And they want to talk to people of color, say, how can we help you? Thing is, like, I feel like right now I'm a victim hmm. in a system of oppression of whiteness. And it's like the oppressor saying, like, how can I help you when, like, really, like, you're part of this bigger system and it's your job to figure it out because I'm in a place of trauma right now and I'm not here to help you. That's not what my job is. And that's not what I am able to do right now. Because right now I just want to say, fuck the world. I have a lot of rage and I'm working through it, but my rage is not going to be helpful to answer your questions. So go to these websites. I don't want to leave you hanging dry. Just go to these websites. I'm sure there'll be information there to help you. Okay, back to action. If you have a business or work for one that is actively supportive and welcoming of all people, we found a great Hate Has No Business Here poster for you to download and print that we've linked to in the show notes. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if actively fighting hate is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about learning how to support your Muslim American neighbors via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Because we could all use some hope right now, I'll end with a few more words from our outgoing president. Quote, for every two steps forward, it often feels we take one step back, but the long sweep of America has been defined by forward motion, a constant widening of our founding creed to embrace all, not just some. So what are we gonna do? Last year, three of my family members were gruesomely murdered in a hate crime. It goes without saying that it's really difficult for me to be here today. But my brother Dlia, his wife Yusur, and her sister Razan don't give me much of a choice. I'm hopeful that by the end of this talk, you will make a choice and join me in standing up against hate. It's December 27th, 2014 the morning of my brother's wedding day. He asks me to come over and comb his hair in preparation for his wedding photo shoot. A 23-year-old, six-foot-three basketball and particularly Steph Curry fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> I 
an American kid in dental school ready to take on the world. When Dia and Yusud have their first dance, I see the love in his eyes, her reciprocated joy, and my emotions begin to overwhelm me. I move to the back of the hall and burst into tears. And the second the song finishes playing, he beelines towards me, buries me into his arms, and rocks me back and forth. Even in that moment, when everything was so distracting, he was attuned to me. He cups my face and says, Suzanne, I am who I am because of you. Thank you for everything. I love you. It's about a month later, I'm back home in North Carolina for a short visit, and on the last evening, I run upstairs to Dia's room, eager to find out how he's feeling being a newly married man. With a big boyish smile, he says, I'm so happy. I love her. She's an amazing girl. And she is. At just 21, she'd recently been accepted to join Dia at UNC Dental School. She shared his love for basketball, and at her urging, they started their honeymoon off attending their favorite team, the NBA, the LA Lakers. I mean, check out that form. <laughs> I'll never forget that moment sitting there with him, how free he was in his happiness. My little brother, a basketball-obsessed kid, had become and transformed into an accomplished young man. He was at the top of his dental school class, and alongside Yusuf and Razan was involved in local and international community service projects dedicated to the homeless and refugees, including a dental relief trip they were planning for Syrian refugees in Turkey. Razan, at just 19, used her creativity as an architectural engineering student to serve those around her, making care packages for the local homeless, among other projects. That is who they were. Standing there that night, I take a deep breath and look at Dia and tell him, "I have never been more proud of you than I am in this moment." He pulls me into his tall frame, hugs me goodnight, and I leave the next morning without waking him to go back to San Francisco. That is the last time I ever hug him. Ten days later, I'm on call at San Francisco General Hospital when I receive a barrage of vague text messages expressing condolences. Confused, I call my father, who calmly intones, "There's been a shooting in Dia's neighborhood in Chapel Hill. It's on lockdown. That's all we know." I hang up and quickly Google "shooting in Chapel Hill." One hit comes up: "Quote: Three people were shot in the back of the head and confirmed dead on the scene." Something in me just knows. I fling out of my chair and faint onto the gritty hospital floor, wailing. I take the first red eye out of San Francisco, numb and disoriented. I walk into my childhood home and faint into my parents' arms, sobbing. I then run up to Dia's room as I did so many times before, just looking for him, only to find a void that will never be filled. Investigation autopsy reports eventually reveal the sequence of events. Dia had just gotten off the bus from class. Razan was visiting for dinner, already at home with Yusuf. As they began to eat, they heard a knock on the door. When Dia opened it, their neighbor proceeded to fire multiple shots at him. According to 911 calls, the girls were heard screaming. The man turned towards the kitchen and fired a single shot into Yusuf's hip, immobilizing her. He then approached her from behind, pressed the barrel of his gun against her head, and with a single bullet, lacerated her midbrain. 
He then turned towards Razan, who was screaming for her life in execution style with a single bullet to the back of the head, killed her. On his way out, he shot Dia one last time, a bullet in the mouth, for a total of eight bullets, two lodged in the head, two in his chest, and the rest in his extremities. Dia, Yusur, and Razan were executed in a place that was meant to be safe, their home. For months, this man had been harassing them, knocking on their door, brandishing his gun on a couple of occasions. His Facebook was cluttered with anti-religion posts. Yusuf felt particularly threatened by him. As she was moving in, he told Yusuf and her mom that he didn't like the way they looked. In response, Yusuf's mom told her to be kind to her neighbor, that as he got to know them, he'd see them for who they were. I guess we've all become so numb to the hatred that we couldn't have ever imagined it turning into fatal violence. The man who murdered my brother turned himself into the police shortly after the murders, saying he killed three kids, execution style, over a parking dispute. The police issued a premature public statement that morning echoing his claims without bothering to question it or further investigate. It turns out there was no parking dispute, there was no argument, no violation. But the damage was already done. In a 24-hour media cycle, the words parking dispute had already become the go-to soundbite. I sit on my brother's bed and remember his words, the words he gave me so freely and with so much love, I am who I am because of you. That's what it takes for me to climb through my crippling grief and speak out. I cannot let my family's deaths be diminished to a segment that is barely discussed on local news. They were murdered by their neighbor because of their faith, because of a piece of cloth they chose to don on their heads, because they were visibly Muslim. Some of the rage I felt at the time was that if roles were reversed and an Arab, Muslim, or Muslim-appearing person had killed three white American college students, execution-style, in their home, what would we have called it? a terrorist attack. When white men commit acts of violence in the U.S., they're lone wolves, mentally ill, or driven by a parking dispute. I know that I have to give my family voice, and I do the only thing I know how. I send a Facebook message to everyone I know in media. A couple of hours later, in the midst of a chaotic house overflowing with friends and family, Our neighbor Neil comes over, sits down next to my parents, and asks, what can I do? Neil had over two decades of experience in journalism, but he makes it clear that he's not there in his capacity as a journalist, but as a neighbor who wants to help. I ask him what he thinks we should do given the bombardment of local media interview requests. He offers to set up a press conference at a, at a local community center. Even now, I don't have the words to thank him. Just tell me when and I'll have the, all the news channels present, he said. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves in a moment of devastation. I delivered the press statement still wearing scrubs from the previous night. And in under 24 hours from the murders, I'm on CNN being interviewed by Anderson Cooper. The following day, major newspapers, including the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, published stories about Dia Yusuf and Razan, 
allowing us to reclaim the narrative and call attention to the mainstreaming of anti-Muslim hatred. These days, it feels like Islamophobia is a socially acceptable form of bigotry. We just have to put up with it and smile. The nasty stares, the palpable fear when boarding a plane, the random pat-downs at airports that happen 99% of the time. It doesn't stop there. We have politicians reaping political and financial gains off our backs. Here in the U.S., we have presidential candidates like Donald Trump casually calling to register American Muslims and ban Muslim immigrants and refugees from entering this country. It is no coincidence that hate crimes rise in parallel with election cycles. Just a couple months ago, Khaled Jabara, a Lebanese-American Christian, was murdered in Oklahoma by his neighbor, a man who called him a filthy Arab. This man was previously jailed for a mere eight months after attempting to run over Khaled's mother with his car. Chances are, you haven't heard Khaled's story, because it didn't make it to national news. The least we can do is call it what it is, a hate crime. The least we can do is talk about it, because violence and hatred doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Not long after coming back to work, I'm the senior on rounds in the hospital when one of my patients looks over at my colleague, gestures around her face, and says, San Bernardino, referencing a recent terrorist attack. Here I am, having just lost three family members to Islamophobia, having been a vocal advocate within my program on how to deal with such microaggressions, and yet, silence. I was disheartened, humiliated. Days later, rounding on the same patient, she looks at me and says, your people are killing people in Los Angeles. I look around expectantly. Again, silence. I realize that yet again, I have to speak up for myself. I sit on her bed and gently ask her, have I ever done anything but treat you with respect and kindness? Have I done anything but give you compassionate care? She looks down and realizes what she said was wrong, and in front of the entire team, she apologizes and says, I should know better. I'm Mexican-American. I receive this kind of treatment all the time. Many of us experience microaggressions on a daily basis. Odds are you may have experienced it, whether for your race, gender, sexuality, or religious beliefs. We've all been in situations where we've witnessed something wrong and didn't speak up. Maybe we weren't equipped with the tools to respond in the moment. Maybe we weren't even aware of our own implicit biases. We can all agree that bigotry is unacceptable, but when we see it, we're silent because it makes us uncomfortable. But stepping right into that discomfort means you are also stepping into the ally zone. There may be over three million Muslims in America, that's still just 1% of the total population. Martin Luther King once said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So what made my neighbor Neil's allyship so profound? A couple of things. He was there as a neighbor who cared, but he was also bringing in his professional expertise and resources when the moment called for it. Others have done the same. Larisha Hawkins, 
drew on her platform as the first tenured African-American professor at Wheaton College to wear a hijab in solidarity with Muslim women who face discrimination every day. As a result, she lost her job. Within a month, she joined the faculty at the University of Virginia, where she now works on pluralism, race, faith, and culture. Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian demonstrated that not all acts of allyship need to be so serious. He stepped up to support a 15-year-old Muslim girl's mission to introduce a hijab emoji. <laughs> It's a simple gesture, but it has a significant subconscious impact on normalizing and humanizing Muslims, including the community as a part of an us instead of an other. Editor-in-chief of Women's Running Magazine just put the first hijabi to ever be on the cover of a U.S. fitness magazine. These are all very different examples of people who drew upon their platforms and resources in academia, tech, and media to actively express their allyship. What resources and expertise do you bring to the table? Are you willing to step into your discomfort and speak up when you witness hateful bigotry? Will you be Neil? Many neighbors appeared in this story, and you and your respective communities all have a Muslim neighbor, colleague, or friend your child plays with at school. Reach out to them. Let them know you stand with them in solidarity. It may feel really small, but I promise you, it makes a difference. Nothing will ever bring back Zia, Yusur, and Razan. But when we raise our collective voices, that is when we stop the hate. We just heard clips today from The David Pakman Show comparing the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II with the types of policies being considered today. Amicus from Slate gave some context to the camps with discussion of the Korematsu case. The Majority Report discussed the explicit anti-Muslim rhetoric of the new National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn. Propaganda from Bitch Media gave some advice on fighting religious and cultural ignorance. The Young Turks called out the president for all the nice things he's said about Islam. Our activism for today is in support of the organization Muslim Advocates, where you can go to learn how to be a better advocate. We also heard in that clip from Good Muslim, Bad Muslim about why doing your own homework is so important. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Suzanne Barakat about the death of her brother at the hands of Islamophobia. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Jennifer from Ohio. I was just calling to see if I could get your opinion on something. Um, I am, I guess, what you'd call a conservative, though I listen to a lot of left-wing radio and podcasts to kind of, I guess, keep my mind fresh. Recently, with the whole election of Donald Trump, I've gone to become back-to-back with my brother, who usually shares the same view I do, but lately has seemed to be way white right-wing. He definitely repeats the rhetoric. I constantly see him posting things on Facebook that even I find offensive. Recently, we even had a family dinner where the things I would hear him say at the table just were embarrassing to what I would consider conservative people. Being on the other side of the fence, how do you suggest reaching out to someone of your own party, your own affiliation, your own viewpoint? 
and kind of reining them back some. Just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Thanks. Best of luck. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we can all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to Jennifer's question, first of all, I love the question, and I I love that for maybe the first time in all the years I've been getting comments and questions on this line, sounds like maybe the first time I've gotten something that's it's like the beginning of a advice column. So I'm going to take a stab at this answer. We'll see how it goes. I, I have several things to say. Not all of them are specifically geared towards the question the way she framed it. Some of it is just how you should talk to people, not because... This is how it's the most polite or the most politically correct or anything like that. It's just because it's the most effective. You want to, if you want to change someone's mind, this is how you do it. Now, what I will say though, you know, it kind of sounded like she thought, hey, maybe I will have experience talking with people on the left who have gone too far left and I need to pull them back to sanity. And you know, the way she's having that problem, she needs to, pull this person who's gone too far right and try to pull them back. And the thing is, that doesn't really exist in America. There is effectively no power structure of any kind, but almost zero people who have gone so far left that they're dangerous or embarrassing or anything like that. So today's episode is an example. There are plenty of conservatives who are like, yeah, maybe internment camps, Whereas on the left, you cannot find anyone who's like, maybe we should put conservatives and Christians in internment camps because they've been screwing up our country so badly, like, we just got to get rid of them. Like, that doesn't exist. Uh, so there really, really is no equivalent to the kind of far-right rhetoric that's going on right now on the left. It just isn't there. It, uh, this is called the Overton window. It's the window of acceptable political views. And that window has been shifting to the right for decades. So yeah, like you used to be able to find really strong, well-attended communist party meetings, and they just don't exist anymore. So with that out of the way, to Jennifer, specifically, when dealing with someone who has gone to a, a, an extreme view, I would say, first of all, stay engaged. Because isolation, isolation with one's thoughts, or isolation, uh, you know, when, when a person is not challenged, they tend, and this is not just on the right, this is across the political spectrum, people tend to seek out news and information that agrees with what they already think, and possibly pushes them further. They are at least susceptible to something that may push them even further. So if you don't challenge the person, then that leads them even more vulnerable to getting pushed further away. So I say, even if it's embarrassing or offensive to you or anything like that, I I meant embarrassing to conservatism the way you described, even if it's frustrating, I I would say stay engaged. Secondly, and this is like, the sages through the ages have known this all along. Listen first, then speak. The best way to have a conversation with someone 
get them to, you know, potentially change their minds or, or lead them away from their current position is to listen to what they're saying first so you can get a really good understanding of where they're coming from, understand why they think what they think, what's underlying what they're saying or their philosophy. And once you know why they think what they think, you can then construct a series of questions that leads the person from where they are. It meets them where they are and sort of respects that about them and leads them away from that using a series of logical questions that sort of shows why their current position is wrong and leads them towards a more sane, hopefully more factually based opinion. This does two things. First of all, when you agree to listen to someone and like really listen deeply, it's showing respect and it's getting the person to trust that you really care about what they have to say. And, and so they let their guard down a little bit because you've let your guard down. And secondly, by asking them questions about their opinions rather than telling them what they should think, it allows them to come to their own conclusions. And when a person comes to their own conclusions, that is far and away the most effective way to change someone's mind. You can't tell someone what their opinion should be and hope that they agree with you, you have to let them come to their own conclusion. It works like a charm compared to uh, the other alternative. Next one. With conservatives in particular, this is a big one. Uh, it's, it's what progressives generally refer to as the empathy gap. Something about our wiring makes progressives more empathetic and conservatives less empathetic. Conservatives can be super empathetic about their family, their close friends, maybe their neighbors, and then generally speaking, no one outside that window. The The biggest example of this is in over the past several decades of the uh, gay rights conversation. Over and over and over again, conservatives would be anti-gay right up until the moment they realized they knew a gay person, especially a gay person in their family. And then they would suddenly think, oh, look, this person who I know and love is gay. Turns out I don't hate gay people. And then they change their minds. It happened over and over and over again. So this is just a fact of life about conservatives. There is an empathy gap there. So if, if what you're trying to convey to this person who's gone too far extreme, Trying to get them to care about people they don't care about is generally going to be a waste of time. You may have luck trying to bridge that empathy gap by relating whatever news story or, or topic of conversation uh, is going on and relating that to something specific within that person's life and saying, you see how this thing going on is like what happened to you. Maybe you can break through that that wall a little bit. But that, that's sort of a long shot. Since this person, Jennifer, is a member of your family, there's always the family angle to, to be concerned about. I was talking with Amanda about this question, and she has experience with this person who's, you know, not blood, but basically like an uncle figure who is super far right wing and says terrible offensive things on the Internet a lot. And she basically had to address him from the family angle and say, look, things are are going too far. We can't keep going this way. This is unhealthy for our relationship. So you may want to go that angle 
to save the relationship, but as I said, you also don't want to disengage from the person and leave them to their own political echo chamber, so maybe you'll have to walk that line, but of course I don't know you're, uh, you know the specifics of the situation. And the last piece of advice, uh, this really is specific to conservatives, uh, not not at all on the other side, is the documentary, it's an independent documentary. I watched it recently. It's called Brainwashing, The Brainwashing of My Dad. And I didn't love the documentary. You know, it, it's made by a at least vaguely progressive, you know, Democratic-leaning person. And it's really made for Democratic-leaning progressive-type people. It, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would sway conservatives. So, you know, even though it was sort of made for me, I would give it like three and a half stars, except mostly I would give it three and a half stars because it was only made for me. And I don't think it would be persuasive on the other side, but for someone like Jennifer in the position that she is in, I would say it is a decent documentary to understand the mechanics of what might be happening. The brainwashing of my dad does not imply that all conservatives are brainwashed just because they're conservative. It really breaks down how conservative media influences the way people end up thinking, and there's this widespread phenomenon of people who used to be, maybe they were Democrats or moderates of any kind, and then they shifted and became super extreme, and they got really angry and would say vile things in person and on the internet. And it, it can really be traced uh, how this process works. And so if you want to understand how a person in your life came to that position, I would take a look at that movie and... If you know if you're a conservative person, but you're you know sort of moderate, like you're not gonna agree with the conclusions that they come to, but the the process that they lay out of how people end up sort of cocooned in their you know their conservative echo chamber and how they end up becoming more and more extreme, that really may be helpful. And one of the biggest takeaways I, I got from that movie, it's not actually a big part of the film. But it's the thing that I found most effective is that they, they interview a couple of people whose it's sort of their specialty to deprogram these people who have just been propagandized into rabid, you know, foaming at the mouth kind of angry conservatives who believe a lot of things that simply isn't true. And so they say that the best strategy is to just to start chipping away at a couple of core issues. And, and I don't even mean issues. I mean specific news stories. There are, are some of these, they're like founding myths almost for modern day conservatism. And they are these stories that are just fabrications. They're not built on anything. And uh, you know, they could be from 10 or 20 years ago, and they get brought up over and over again just sort of as a reference point. And if you can know what these stories are, I, honestly, I forget if they were referenced by name or, or whatever in the film. I just forget what they were. But if you can know what these stories are that come up over and over again, 
and you can show some really detailed, reliable research and news that debunks these stories, and you can show, hey, look, this is one of the biggest things that you take for granted as being true, and here I can prove that it's not true. You do that a time or two or three, and the the scales begin to fall, the cracks begin to appear, and and people have the chance to come back then. Because once you show them that they've been lied to a couple of times, it's only natural that they're going to start to ask, "Have I? how much have I been lied to? I mean, this is, look, you've showed me, it's clearly a lie. What else falls under that category? So those are my thoughts for Jennifer. If you have any uh, comments you want to throw in or questions to ask yourself, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what Stories and forget who it is before.